We're gonna go for this. I don't even care if I make a mistake this time. I have stopped recording on this, I don't know how many times now. It's the whole challenge of this video format. I'm getting used to it. This is my, uh, I think my third episode in video. Uh, so I'm gonna try to do the best thing, or do the best job I can here uh, and, and just power through this. So I'm gonna throw my sales pitch here at the beginning. Please like, follow, and uh, download this podcast. Review it where you can. Apple podcast is one of the main ones for that. Um, but make sure to hit follow on the podcast. And above all, please share the podcast with those you know. Uh, you can post links for it on your social media. It doesn't matter how you get it out there. Text it to all your friends. Tell everybody about that. Knock on your neighbor's doors. Uh, no, what it means for us is the higher, uh, the higher we get in audience listenership, the better quality guests that we can get on the show the more production time we can put into it, the better overall experience we can get. That's not to undercut what we've had so far. We have amazing content on here for anybody who is interested in land on any level, whether that be landowners, um, hunters, outdoorsmen, uh, out, you know, outdoors, I'll say yeah, that was outdoors enthusiasts. Um, no, this is, this is something that we put a lot of effort into and we want it to grow very quickly and we want a large audience. And so we get that by people like you uh, telling other people about it. So please do so. It is uh, my sincere request from me to you. Uh, so anyways, let's kick this off. Welcome to episode number 81 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian. I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty, and I will be your host for this episode. This episode is a good one. Uh, we have here Jackson Takish. He's the chief economist for Farmer Mac. If you have missed previous episodes, uh, Jackson Takish meets with us graciously once per quarter to talk about what happened uh, in the weeks leading up to the episode, as well as what we expect for the year ahead. Um, Jackson truly is one of the top minds in agricultural economics throughout the United States when it comes down to understanding the markets and where we see those going, he's really one of the people you want to listen to our previous episode as well. Uh, you know, listen to that one as well. We have another, uh, very, very qualified individual talking about, uh, the, the state of the year ahead in 2024 as well. This is a series we do at the beginning of every year. We try to get as much information as possible. Um, Jackson is fantastic. I I've talked to him on numerous occasions now and, uh, I have I have never walked away from a conversation with him without feeling smarter. So uh, take a listen, and you too can have that feeling today. Uh, today we're talking about what we expect for the year ahead in 2024, where we are now. Everything that Jackson said it would happen last year happened. So just to let you know, there is a possibility he's right this time too, uh, as well as the the possible scenario of biofuels encouraging more domestic production um, in the realm of industrial machines and uh, airliners. It's something I had never thought of, and, and it has to do with soy markets and corn markets. It's not a for sure thing. This is definitely, this is definitely uh, me getting him to put himself on the line, 
by uh, postulating, by uh, thinking about a scenario that could happen and just discussing it. So uh, it's not it's not a definite, but it's a really, really interesting possibility. Uh, sit back and enjoy. We're about to, to go through some really cool information that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Thank you. All right. Okay, so once again, as we have done uh, as we've done quarterly here, I am sitting here with Jackson Takish, uh, Chief. You 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 run the you run the economics, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got Chief Economist. Yeah, yeah, Chief Economist for Farmer Mac. And uh, so, for those of you who have missed the fantastic episodes that we have done so far, go back and listen to them. Uh, but for those of you that have not heard the episodes that we've done with Jackson here in the past. Um, Jackson, if you could just tell listeners, you know, sort of what you do, um, you know, and, and maybe like a brief overhead of Farmer Mac. I, I would be happy to. Thank you for having me once again, Mac. It's always a pleasure. Uh, my name is Jackson Takish, and I'm the chief economist over at a company called Farmer Mac. Um, so as the name might imply, we uh, deal with agricultural mortgages. So we're like a Fannie or Freddie, but we work in uh, the ag space. Uh, secondary market, meaning we don't have retail offices, you know, farmers don't walk in and get a farmer Mac loan. They work with their lenders all across the country. And then we work with those lenders as well to offer long-term financing of all different term points and styles and product types uh, that really fit farmers needs. Uh, and just try to make, you know, more capital available at very attractive levels to farmers and ranchers, uh, from coast to coast. Uh, we also do uh, agricultural, in addition to our agricultural lines, we work in making rural infrastructure and the, the food supply chain uh, um, a more capital efficient system. So we're a secondary market for things like rural telecom, a rural cooperative financing, uh, as well as renewable project finance all across the country. And we uh, work in sort of that up the scale food supply chain as well, providing capital and financing as a secondary market for agribusinesses. So we're a little bit of everything. Uh, but we're really focused on keeping that rural capital supply chain well-filled, serving uh, farmers, ranchers, rural Americans, and then their capital providers um, every single day. And when you say when you say things like you're just a company, uh, I feel like that I feel like that undercuts a little bit. Like I, I, <laughs> you, you guys are the place where people go to get loans for agriculture. I mean, that's. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, th thank you. Thank you. I, I maybe <laughs> I'm a humble, you know, <laughs> but a humble chief economist, uh, but you're right. We're, we're the sort of, uh, premier secondary market, uh, approaching 30 billion in size of assets. And we're in, uh, all 50, our portfolio is very broad. So we've served over 80,000 farmers and ranchers all across the country. Millions of acres have come through our portfolio and, uh, we've saved billions for uh, farmers, ranchers, rural Americans, rural cooperatives, uh, rural businesses in financing costs by offering that long-term fixed. You know, at no time uh, like the last couple of years when you see interest rates start to creep up, has having that long-term fixed capital option been more valuable? And we saw so many people in 2020 and 21 lock in interest rates at three and a half, four percent 4% on a farm loan. Uh, and then that's good for 30 years. So they didn't see a dime of increase in their interest expense on that on that property after interest rates went up two, 300 basis points, right? So uh, it's really a, a great value uh, that we provide. We feel like we provide to uh, farmers, ranchers, rural Americans everywhere. And, and I would say, you know, when it comes down to it, what is it, uh, like 97, 96 or whatever percent of America is rural. 
So when we're talking about the influence, because you always hear about Fannie and Freddie, right? Like those, those make the news. And I think those make the news because of what we saw in 2006, that whole thing, they've become, you know, they become household names. I don't think anybody knew of them all that well before that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm totally throwing that out there. Maybe people knew that before that. But, some people did. Yeah. Some yeah, people yeah. Did. But when, but when you think about what your organization actually serves, you're talking 90% of the country. Yeah, it, it's a it's a lot, you know. If you think about um, again the the swath of the counties where we have had uh, loans financed, where we've seen uh, rural businesses, uh, food, you know, timber, uh, um, you you, re you really name it. We've done over 150 different commodities and business types in the portfolio over the years. Uh, no, almost no county is. If you see a map of all the counties we've served, it lights up uh, like a Christmas tree on that map. So we really are. Behind the scenes, everywhere again, we have not, no retail presence, but we're working with the lenders that are serving those uh, um, uh, borrowers, those rural Americans, and we're just we're in it to keep that capital flowing and uh, support you know land uh, owners, uh, people who are financing land, and uh, everyone who's kind of serving in that supply chain. Which, if you think about it, we all eat. So you know, I like to think we help keep food prices low. I mean, that we really go all the way out to your uh, dinner plate to uh, every single uh, person in the country. But you know, I'll I'll restrict us to you know sort of the direct uh, mission related activities that PharmaMac helps achieve. Yeah, and so this just popped into my head, and I'm going to steer a little bit off topic. Maybe I might I might I don't think I'm putting you on the spot, but if I am, you know, I I know I know that you know you'll let me know. But I live on the spot. Mac. All right, there we go. That's what I like to hear. So. <laughs> When we're talking about, and, and what I want to ask you is about the mechanism of sure. what a secondary market functions as is is when when we're talking about you are the secondary market where where say banks and lenders go to get loans, um, the key conversation over the last two years, year and a half, has been interest rate hikes, and and tell me how the mechanism and and this is you know we're going to a one on one level on economics. But I think it's good to know because not everybody jumped into economics 101. You know, some of us were art majors like me, you know, so, uh, you know, jump in a little bit on how the mechanism works when you're talking about setting up a secondary market, mm -hmm. how interest rate plays into that and and sort of how how that trickles down to someone who is buying land. Well, it, it's complicated, but let's let's. I'll give it a shot, right? I'll all give right, it a shot all right. To, to to try to simplify it as best I can, um, it's all about getting money, right? If you're trying to buy a property and you need to borrow a little bit of capital to do that, where does that money come from, and who's providing it? Uh, in those primary markets, a lot of times those like a bank or a farm credit system institution, they have their own sources of money that they're going to access. In, in the bank's case, they have deposits, so they'll look to their deposits or there's other, you know, other, it's more nuanced than that, but you know, that's the biggest source of their capital stack. The farm credit system goes out and issues bonds, right. And they take that money and then they lend it out. Uh, what the secondary market allows institutions in that primary market to do is have access to a wider selection of capital, if you will. So a bank, for example, maybe they've got great access to shorter term capital, you know, two or three year financing, harder for them to borrow for 10, 15, 30 years. So they can still do it, but it's harder for them and less capital efficient for them to do so. So they could come to a company like Farmer Mac, who we operate in that longer term space. We issue bonds, we do securitizations, we issue securities, those kinds of things. We have a capital or an investor base that's a little bit more long term in nature. We can pass those benefits through to a, a financing institution. 
uh, and give them greater access to different types of money, right? So if a farmer wanted a 30-year fixed rate, they now have more options to go do that because FarmerMac is working with different institutions on that front line to offer a 30-year. Since we have a 30-year product, now more institutions can offer a 30-year product. That increases the competition out there for that borrower, and that lowers interest costs. The more competition that's out there for a farmer, rancher, uh, agribusiness, the, the more that people want to bank them or lend them money, the cheaper that money gets for them. And then they're going to have that savings and they're going to pass that through um, to their customers, right? And then it's sort of a virtuous cycle. Uh, so it's all about money. Where is that money coming from? Us as a secondary market, Farm Act is a secondary market because we access longer term capital. We can do things like longer term uh, bonds or we can package up uh, farm loans and, into securities and we can access longer term capital. We pass that benefit on to primary institutions who need it. And and let's cover really quick, just you know, because the the topic of the day is interest rates. Do you guys just arbitrarily set it, just like randomly hike up the interest rate and 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 run it that way? I I I wish you're giving us, I think, more power than I think anyone <laughs> could possibly have. No, it's absolutely not arbitrary. These are all market driven things, right? So there's a whole market out there that say, hey, here's what things cost, right? Here's how much money costs based off of how capable you are as a credit, right? So if you're a good credit, you're going to pay less. If you're a bad credit, you might pay a little bit more, right? So there's all sorts of market participants who are lending and borrowing money, and that really sets the market rates. And when things like the federal funds rate, which again, flashback to, uh, I think one of our, our first meetings, uh, Mac, we talked about what that is. That's really sort of the wholesale short-term rate of interest. So when the Fed sets that policy rate, what that does is increase sort of the most basic level of money for everyone. It kind of increases the cost of money on a short-term basis. And then that's, everyone has to adjust to that level, right? So now all of a sudden, if I'm going to borrow money, sort of that primary wholesale rate is now higher. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say, well, now I've got to borrow money higher. If I'm going to lend it out to somebody, that's going to cost more as well. So it's kind of a, there's a broad market, but there's also mechanisms inside that market that sort of raise and lower absolute limits. On the yeah, long end of the curve, so things like 10-year, you know, 15-year, longer-term stuff, that's very market-driven. So that's, uh, you know, banks, financial institutions, uh, money markets, uh, accounts, other governments are buying and selling uh, debt. And that's really what's setting those interest rates out there in the long curve. So it's less policy when you get further out. So the longer you want to borrow, the more it's market-driven. And the shorter-term stuff is really tied to central bank policies uh, here and abroad. Yeah. And that's, and I mean, you know, that's sort of leading me there because I wanted to paint the picture of, you know, you have the the Federal Reserve, you know, I I, I kind of joke about it and call it a one trick pony, but like they really do have one lever on the markets, right? And it's interest rate. And and they set up the the rate at which you can, you know, how much does money cost? And they're sort of the tip of the spear and they adjust it. And then everybody else down the line has to adjust as they borrow money as, as it goes. To where and, and and you know what I what I wanted to to have the conversation around is like organizations like Farmer Mac they're they're not just arbitrarily setting the rate they're also borrowing money and and that's a part of it you know you mentioned as well you have securities and you have bonds and stuff like that but the key there is the fulcrum point is when the Federal Reserve moves everybody else down the line has to eventually move to where they are and then it's organizations like yours that are trying to set 
you know, what can we do within those constraints to get the interest down on, say, like a long-term loan? But in the short-term loans, like you said, you can't do a lot to adjust that because that's the cost of money right now. And and so that whole mechanism, like that's what we're seeing right now, right? Like they wanted to slow the economy down. So you hike interest rate, you slow down borrowing because it was moving so red hot that jacked up inflation. And and so then, the, you know, they've got their one mechanism and that's hiking interest rates. And the the worst time to be is that that leading edge of the curve, right? When a change happens, that's when everything gets kind of like everyone adjusts, you know, there's reactions, markets really like have to adjust quickly and change happens. And so that's that's kind of what we're in the middle of right now, right? Yeah, I, I would say it was probably more pronounced early on in 23 when the rates really started to move. A couple of banks, right, uh, looked at their balance sheets and went, wow, we didn't expect this. And there were some adjustments that had to be made. A couple of banks ended up uh, upside down in terms of their uh, marketable securities, right? So cha rapid change can lead to some pretty big adjustments. But overall, when I look at the last year, uh, I expected it. I think a lot of economists too, you go back to 23, there were a lot of economists at the beginning of the year saying, we're going to have a recession this year. Just look at what the Fed's doing. It's sucking up all this capital. It's increasing the costs, right? They're trying to suck money out of the economy and put it into, to, you know, into the money, money markets and other funds. We want it out of cash and into stuff. Um, and that's going to cause problems. It's going to raise credit costs and all these things are going to happen. And we didn't have that bad of a year overall, when you look at sort of some of the, the economic indicators from 23. And then a, a lot of economists still hanging on like, no, no, it's coming. Don't worry, right? You can't have a this much change in an economy, you know, the ups and downs from the pandemic and the, you know, resurgence right after the pandemic to major changes in interest rate policy without some big economic effect. But those voices are getting fewer and fewer. So you look at the 24 and more economists, blue, you know, blue chip projections are all starting to say like, eh, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad outlook for 24. Uh, and the Fed's holding pot, you know, holding pat. They're like right at that five and a half percent Fed funds level, sticking it out, saying, hey, we want to make sure there's no inflation. We would rather sort of put additional pressure on the economy because the economy is pretty strong. We'd rather do that than risk seeing inflation kind of sweep back in and have a repeat of the 1980s. Yeah, nobody wants that. So, in you know, it, I, and I like to, you just spoke to the banks on how they adjusted and they didn't expect it. It's kind of like fast car syndrome, right? Like everybody loves to drive fast and you'll drive as fast as long as it permits. But if a corner comes up on you and you're not expecting it, you got to pump the brakes really fast to adjust. And that's sort of what everybody hears. It's that like, oh no, you know, where they 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 have to, they, they, they pivot really quick. And, and like you said, a lot of economists all around, I mean, you know, that was the number one headline is like, we are heading not for a corner, but a cliff. And, and a lot of people thought we were going to go into this crazy recession. And, and to your point, some still say we are, but it looks like, and, and this is, I guess this is a good point to kind of move into the conversation is when, when we spoke last year, we, we talked in Q1 of last year and the prediction that, that you had that was shared with numerous economists that we've talked to on, on this podcast was that, yes, we're, we're not going to be looking at the, the, you know, fire that we had for the last few years really was because, you know, people were hanging out and people were storing up cash supplies and spending it. And, and that drove an inflationary environment where, you know, you're not spending money on driving and you're not doing a lot of the things that you used to do. So now you're just, you know, you got a couple beers and you spend some time on Amazon and there you go. Right. Like, like there's a purchase cycles that happen, especially in real estate, like where we saw the strongest, craziest 
real estate market that I mean, since 2006, but it wasn't necessarily because of, you know, this perspective environment where people are, you know, throwing money to make money. It was a little more cash driven this time around because, you know, there, there were loans, but they were fixed and there was a lot, a lot of cash on the market. And, you know, where where the predictions were that, you know, it's not going to be a disaster. What we're looking at is a plateau. And, you know, we just talked before 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 I hit the record button, we were talking about it. And and uh, and my comment to, to you was like, it looks like your crystal ball worked like everything that you predicted in Q1 of last year is exactly almost to the T what happened in the markets last year. We had a a decline in velocity, but a plateau, meaning the the overall economics of land values and and you know this is this is a podcast about land so we talk about land i'm not going to talk about retail or anything like that but what we saw was the velocity of the purchase and sale cycle declined but plateaued it stayed level throughout the year we didn't see anything go off a cliff we didn't see anything accelerate it just kind of stayed where it was um I, you, if you want to throw some insight to that real quick you know more than happy to have a smarter person talk about it. <laughs> well, you know, I think the in, intuition makes sense, right? It's like, hey, when you see a big change, if you don't have to sell, you might not sell, right? Or if you don't have to buy, you might not buy. So I think all across the the the, the board, a lot of people took a look at their finances. A lot of people took a look at their assets and they said, you know what? I'm going to wait and see. Uh, particularly in real estate, where uh, if you had any leverage on your land at all, if you sell it, you give up that leverage. If you're, you're trying to maybe uh, trade a piece of land, you say, okay, well, I'm too concentrated here and I want to maybe move over here and get a piece, or I just want to get out of uh, this, maybe liquidate a little bit, change my asset profile, and you had a 3%, 4% mortgage on it, your alternative now that you maybe you sell that piece of land or go to look for a new piece of land to buy and take that capital and move it to a new piece of land, all of a sudden you're talking about a seven to 8%, right? Cost of capital. So a lot of people, and then very true in housing as well, in my neck of the woods, in my neighborhood outside of uh, Washington, DC, nobody sold. Everybody with a, with a with a mortgage stayed put because they were sitting on a three, four, 5% mortgage. And they're like, Sure, I can you know sell at a good price because the prices are pretty good. But when I get into my new home, all of a sudden I got to get a mortgage at you know three x the interest rate. So um, there was just a lot of I think inertia because people looked at their balance sheets and they said I kind of like what I've got here. Let's wait and see what happens. And also I think there was some psychology of maybe prices come back a little bit, right? They were pretty it was pretty frothy in the marketplace at the end of twenty two. Um, a lot of bids out there, a lot of cash kind of floating through with the grain prices where they were. Um, the cattle cycle was kind of coming down a little bit. So I think there was just a lot of cash out there in the, the marketplace. And people said, I'm going to try to wait this out a little bit. Let's see if prices come down. What they didn't fully realize until maybe end of the year in 23 was, oh, wait, if nobody's selling, supply is very low. <laughs> So what happens when supply goes down, price goes up, holds or goes up, right? So in a lot of markets, you see that phenomenon where there wasn't a lot of land transacted. So you think maybe, hey, prices are going to take a dip. But because not a lot of land transacted, prices held steady. Whatever came up, people were ready to buy and use that, cut that cash to work. But since there wasn't a lot of it, it was just a more 
money chasing the the lower supply. So you ended up like seeing uh, what I what I think many thought would be a cooling period ended up we we advanced land values by three four percent. So was, not the twenty yeah. percent that we've seen in the last two you know, in the last two years, but still three to four percent. When I think at the beginning of the year, a lot of people were saying, "Hey, we're going to see a three percent decline. Like we might see a contraction of three or four percent." Instead, we saw an advance of three four percent, and that's all supply, all supply. It's kind of like diamond syndrome, right? Like there's a lot of diamonds out there, but only so many are released into the market at a time to maintain the value of the gem, right? Like that's, we didn't do it on purpose. I mean, I mean we, I mean like the the country yeah. as a whole didn't do it on purpose. It just happened that way. Yeah, that, there's not some, you know, I think syndicate of landholders like, you know, controlling the available supply. Same way there's not in the housing markets, but the prevailing psychology when you've got a very low interest rate is hang on to it. Uh, it's a it's an asset, really. I mean, if you think about um, a low interest mortgage today in a higher interest rate world, that low interest rate is an asset. So you only get rid of it if you get a much better trade on the other side. And that's going to affect the psychology, I think, for another year. You know, we're not going to be in a 7% world forever. Um, I think there's a lot of things that say, hey, we could see another 100 to 200 basis. But we're already down 50 basis points in the last four or five months in so half a percentage point, maybe in the last uh, three to four months, uh, another half a point could come out later this year. Right. So, you know, things are starting to leak out a little bit and that's going to, I think, start to loosen up uh, people's willingness to refinance or trade land a little bit more. Um, but, you know, still today, I think Q4 was pretty active. I see, you know, some of the listings and some of the sales that happened in Q4 was a kind of a pop, but Q4 is always, that's always the pop, right? I mean, that's a seasonal, uh, business in some states, when you get the corn out of the ground, that's the time to start thinking about making a move. Uh, and we saw that a little bit in Q4. I was going to say, that's exactly the sales cycle that we typically see is people wait until harvest to sell the land because otherwise you're working it. And it, and even in the cases where the land is leased, you know, the leases usually end after harvest or are renewed after harvest. And so you're not going to, people don't want to push people off of land that they're leasing or anything like that. So they, they wait until the sales cycle is through to make a transaction and whether those leaseholders stay for the next owner or, you know, things like that. Like that's, that's, you're right. That's exactly when the markets move. I, I wanted to ask you, cause I want to get to the meat of the conversation and really why the people are listening. I'm kind of holding everybody hostage right now to get into what <laughs> but what, what I wanted to ask you is, do, do you think there's also a case, because this is a conversation that we've had along with the interest rate and people sitting on the sideline, some people were waiting for, you know, I'm going to hold on to my land and wait because I think the market's going to tank. And that's when I have, that's when I can capitalize on the value that I have and waited it out. And they saw this plateau hold and and now markets are starting to move like, ah, oh, yeah, well, I guess it's not going to tank. I'm still going to make my transaction. Do you think that there's also a case of because of the velocity of the market that we saw from, we're going to say 2000, late 2018 to 2021-22, um, do you think that the other part of it could be that a lot of the people that were going to make a transaction, say in 2024-2025, made it? And when you make those transactions, you're, you're you're not exactly, land doesn't work the same way, like I got to buy new shoes every six months. You You hold land for a long time. Do you think that plays a role that it sort of ex accelerated the sales to happen then that would normally be happening now? Well, that's a that's a tough one because there's so many things at play in when you choose to sell an asset like a farm, right? I think you you 
describe it very well. It's not a new pair of shoes. It's not even a, a home, right? People tend to move in and out of homes every, it's, you know, getting shorter and shorter. Used to be an average of, you know, 10, 15 years. We're kind of like approaching five or six, you know, that people tend to uh, live in a house and then they trade it and they, you kind of move you know, into bigger houses as their family grows, or if they don't have a family, maybe they move into different parts of the country. Um, so there, there's these you know, sort of prevailing cycles. And in land, it's much, much, much longer. Um, just because, you know, some of these assets are traded generationally. And there is parcels that won't be up for sale. And maybe they traded uh, three or four years ago. Unless something dramatic changes in that operation in that family, it may not be available again for 30, 40, or 50 years. Uh, as that family changes hands, generate as you know, operation moves uh, generationally. So it's a very different asset class compared to almost anything else. Even commercial real estate changes hands, and you can benchmark you know similar properties or same property benchmarks pretty frequently. I mean, you can see you know this uh, uh, skyscraper, you know, marquee skyscrapers sell every ten years uh, in, in some of these big markets. Not true of the same properties in agriculture. So there's this. I think the difference in the demand structure and the supply structure that make it hard to predict when there's going to be a huge amount of change in, in supply of land. Um, I do think, you know, some people will always try to sell at the top, right? So there's going to be some people who are going to take some profits. Prices are relatively high. Maybe interest rates are coming back out. Maybe there's more opportunities uh, looking into 24, 25 and other asset classes. So you could see, I think, some trading happen in 24 and 25, just as hey, there's just more lubrication in the market, right? There's just, like you say, hey, what am I waiting for, right? Let me go ahead and do some of this. Uh, but I think probably in most land markets, it's going to be family generational transitions, right? And that's what a lot of people in our line of work, right? When you think about, um, you know, farmland finance or or land ownership, and asset management, it's we've been talking about this for one the whole entire twenty years that I've been doing this. In, in, you know, my career is there's a lot of aging farmers, and what's going to happen to that land as it cascades down to the next generation? And I think that's going to be even more of a topic of conversation in the next three to four years. Maybe not this year. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe a lot of people who kind of in, uh, felt out twenty three are going to sit sit tight. Maybe go back to buying mode rather than you know, get out of selling mode. Um, but I think we're a couple innings away from, you know, some big tr changes in general generational transition. Yeah. So I guess, I, you know, that steers us pretty well into um, what what do you anticipate the the land value outlook being for 2024? Maybe the velocity of, you know, real estate markets having to do with agriculture or, you know, how does that play into, say, the the price of commodities or the price of inputs, even, and and how that plays into it for the year ahead? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big part. Of, like when you think about asset, what's an asset worth to me? Um, a lot of it is how much can I sell it for, right? So if I think it's going to go up in value, I'll pay you uh, this for it. If I know it's going to go up that much, I'll maybe pay you more for it, right? The other part of it is, does it throw off incomes, right? So I may price an asset differently if it's going to generate higher incomes, or I, I think it's going to generate higher incomes over the next couple of years, and then the price will go up and then I'll sell it, right? So it's a combination of not just is the supply and demand going to drive up the absolute price, but also can it generate cash flow? So that's when you get into, hey, what's going on in commodities? What's going on in farm profitability? Um, I will say, you know, the outlook for 24 is definitely more muted 
than 22 and 23. Hard to beat 22. I think farm profits by and large, again, there's, you know, it's a wide spectrum of profitability out there in operational styles. And if I say, hey, all farms are profitable in 22, there's going to be somebody who says, that's not true. If you were in this market, in this you know commodity, it was not profitable that year. That's absolutely true. But by and large, the profit levels on farms in 22 were the highest they've been in history, right? So it was the highest net cash farm income in history adjusted for inflation. Just an a outstanding number, hard to beat. 23 was less, but still 25, 30% better than average. So pretty good. 24 looks like we're about right at average, right? So it's going to be uh, similar to what we saw in 20, like to 2019, 2020 levels of farm profitability. Um, however, there's still a great amount of cash coming carryover from those sort of go-go years in 22 and 23. So that's going to help. I think these... Um, you know, farms stay afloat, right? Still make uh, decent profits, still you know, plant crops profitably into 24, but it's not going to be a repeat, right? This is not going to be nearly as strong as 23 or nowhere near as strong as 22. So that changes the calculus, right? That changes the calculus when you say, okay, well, it's not going to be a 5% return to pro on a profit level, right? I'm not going to make 5% in profit, you know, an annual profit from planting a crop on it. Um, that changes the calculus on what some investors might think the asset class is worth. So there's some pressure there. There's definitely some pressure coming into the farm profitability numbers. But what I'll say, USDA just put out, it was like two days ago, they just put out their February release. And I think it's, uh, you know, the February release is a good one. They put out great numbers, no, no shade to cast on the USDA. But every year, whatever they put out in February, on average, they revise it up by like 10 to 15%. So... You do that math, maybe 24 isn't quite as bad as what those early USDA numbers um, lead lead us to believe. So if I'm hearing you, it, the we're sort of thinking that the the plateau is going to carry maybe with a little bit of velocity is is kind of what I'm is, is what I'm hearing here, where we're we're not looking at you know again no cliff that no cliff we are seeing. I mean you know there could always be a cliff, but <laughs> all economic indicators. Are, are telling us that markets will hold strong and and maintain. We're not going to see a ton of velocity, but there could be, you know, within a few percentage points, some velocity in the market as people sort of start putting their feet in the water. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I don't think, I don't anticipate a huge change in supply, a huge increase in supply. Um, and I don't anticipate people revaluing um, you know, the next five years of farmland just because of one projection uh, in, you know, 2024. There's still a lot of really interesting intersections between energy and uh, agriculture that are going to play out over the next, you know, three to five to 10 years that could be pretty big demand drivers for both commodities as well as farmland itself, land, you know, all land itself. Uh, so I think there's still quite a bit to to play out in terms of demand for both the land and then the crops that grow on that land. That was a really, really beautiful topical transition right there, because right before we jumped in here, we were talking a little bit about biofuels. Uh, so let's 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 talk about that a little bit. You you were mentioning that there there is sort of a biofuels were going to play a role in the markets at a stronger and stronger level 
Uh, so tell me a little bit about that and what that means for the markets. Well, I, I see it as sort of uh, three moving pieces, right? So the the scare that I started to think about, so the scary scenario, I was thinking about a few years ago when Tesla really started to gain momentum and you saw more electric vehicles on the road was every time one of those rolled out, there was you know 10% of gasoline that's no longer being consumed is ethanol. And that leads all the way back to a lot of corn growers and, and acres of corn, you know, 90 million acres of corn every year that get grown and half of that goes into, uh, you know, corn ethanol. Um, but the flip side of that, yes, we're going to be seeing, I think, more and more EVs, but the flip side is it's hard to use, to use electric vehicles and batteries to replace heavy uh, transport. So things like, you know, trucking or um, you know, heavy machinery or farm equipment. And what's been happening there to sort of transition out of more in carbon intensive fuels is renewable diesel has become a greater and greater, um, you know, darling of lower carbon fuel proponents. So uh, it's not ethanol, right? It's a different uh, calculus, different chemistry, but it comes from soybeans, right? You crush soybean oil and you can make it into uh, renewable diesel. So that's that's number two, right? You've got ethanol maybe starting to fade a little bit, but you've got this huge push for renewable diesel and it's going to be pretty sizable. The market for that is pretty sizable. The third leg of the sort of biofuels recalculation or the you know change in the calculus is sustainable aviation fuels, right? So this is a relatively new biofuel field. Uh, again, I'm no chemist here, so I'm not going to uh, pretend to get into why that fuel type has a lower carbon profile than current uh, aviation blends, but it's, it's a blendable fuel. So you can put it into sort of the current uh, a jet fuel, you know, whatever uh, uh, standard blend, uh, and it lowers the uh, carbon output. So, so when um, airline companies are starting to think about their net zero promises, or they're, they're doing a lot of things, I think, uh, for, from a consumer and policy perspective to try to lower their carbon, uh, the carbon footprint of flying, they're highly interested in these sustainable aviation fuels or SAFs. Now, whether or not they become, you know, the, the de facto future of aviation fuel, there's still a lot of things to sort out. There's calculus happening on how much carbon and what's the right carbon calcul you know, calculations to do. So there's still a lot to play out on that front. But if these SAFs pick up the demand for them is very, very high. The cost of SAFs are very, very high. So if it starts to demand starts to drive production, it's going to be a, a, a pretty big demand pull for corn. So you can convert ethanol into some SAFs and you can convert uh, soybean oil into SAFs. So there you, there's another huge demand pull. We're talking about billions of gallons of this stuff that are going to be needed to meet some of these pledges that these airlines are starting to make in terms of lower carbon outputs. So you've got maybe some one threat on the EV front, but you've got two drivers of lower carbon fuels that can come from corn and soybeans. And that's going to drive, I think, a, a, not an ethanol. So when, when ethanol came to be in 2005 and two, again in 2008, think about the amount of value that came back into farmland, probably not to that extreme, but the demand drivers for the commodities could be pretty sizable um, if these fuels get picked up and they become mainstream. 
Yeah, and you just talked to a couple logistical things that that are sort of, I, th I think, underplayed when the conversation happens about EVs out there is that, you know, a Tesla runs off a battery, but the thing weighs as much as a tank. So if you were to, <laughs> if you were to look at putting, like, like, let's say, you know, we have this big transition, everything moves electrical. Now think about the actual, like, what moves the tank? Like, now a tank weighs as much as a building, like, because... Yeah. And and I'm talking and and I'll go down to to you know dump trucks to to like you know your your cats out there or yeah, that, that's just one product right but like bulldozers we'll say bulldozers and yes that's right you can't get to you know, I can't just, just say cat because you know, that's a brand right but it gets you're gonna get a call from somebody I know I know that's just good branding if you call them all cats they know that but when you're talking about heavy machinery how do you do that when you're gonna like double the weight of what's because you know if they have a battery there's so much weight in that you got to be able to power the, the size of the battery is probably not a sustainable model especially when you think about what because you know the conversation always goes back to what supplies the battery and you've got to have lithium supplies and you have to open up new mines and that's a whole different thing and a lot of it's not in the u.s and so now you're in the same problem you had with oil as far as export import and then when you look at the airline industry which you know when when we're looking at how that is progressing it's it's gotten more and more commonplace especially in the last 20 years where it's almost like a bus system now and it's only increasing and when you have that you know again same problem with an airplane like there's a weight distribution according to how big the wings are you probably can't power those by a battery at least you know with what we have now that's not going to change and it's increasing with what you just talked about everybody always associates corn with biofuels you just talk to soy though and we're talking about something that's already our largest export right that increasing really affects what we're looking at in land markets right it absolutely does and not only that i mean the, the one of the great outcomes of this could be that we keep more soy we export less which is fine because there's plenty coming out of Brazil, right? That can fulfill these export markets, right? So we're not going to increase the price of food everywhere just because we're now, you know, converting soy into renewable diesel. Uh, there's a lot of soybeans, right? There's plenty of soybeans. So if we keep more here, we're actually adding the value here. We're not sending the raw material somewhere else and then they add the value. That's what's happening today. We send 60% of our soybeans to China. They crush it, use the meal, use the oil. Uh, here, we would actually crush it here, add the value to the, the the agricultural product here, increase the amount of agricultural value chain that's captured in U.S. Uh, agribusinesses, and then we get more use out of all the products. So we keep the oil, we keep the meal, it's going to lower the price of uh, feed potentially, um, increase the amount of that total profit will stay more in this country. Not to say I want to not you know help other countries be profitable, of course I do, but the more that we can capture here of that value chain the more businesses are enriched and the more our economy can grow. Yeah. And, and that's a really interesting kind of dynamic as well, because you could see how that plays into, uh, and, and of course we're talking perspective stuff. This is all theoretically, you know, but, but it, it, it looks like a, a plausible situation where, like you said, we, we would be exporting less or increasing production. And as you increase production, you would also be strengthening the value of other commodities mm -hmm. because each one of those requires land, you know, you might grow more soy, but you've still got to grow wheat. And so then, you know, if more land is attributed to soy, that also strengthens the value of wheat because it becomes more precious as, you know, demand increases for that. 
And and so you're talking and and as you export less, exactly what you just spoke to, mm-hmm. more money stays within country instead of being shipped out, and those margins being being held by other countries. Because if you if you export, it's a price game. Other countries are going to import what is of the best value for what they spend, and if that stays internal, then that whole you know the, the profits of that all stays within country. It's sort of an you know it's an overall strengthening of markets between fuels and you know edible commodities and stuff like that, right? It it is, and I'll I'll say the um, absolute best thing for. If you had to pick something to export, right, along a supply chain, it's going to be the last thing. You've captured all the value. You've probably done it at a, at a sizable scale, and you've produced something safe, safely at the lowest possible cost when you export it. So you're going to pass along that value to the end consumer in a foreign market, right? So it's a it's a a really important thing for the agricultural supply chain to be able to capture more of that value, and it also increases the value of what we're going to export in terms of maybe services like flights, right? That could go, no, well, maybe those flights will now become cheaper, allow more people to uh, afford trips, right? So there's other ancillary benefits that are going to be passed along by us keeping more of that value chain here in the States. Yeah. And and that's also another important point. Yeah. That's it. I, that's why I enjoy talking to you. You, you know, the things, right? So, but it, <laughs> but it is the, if you can get the crude product, you get more value because you run the processing and you get the margin of selling it. And That's right. if, if we hold the the processing of of those goods, then that just retains that much more earnings for our country, right? That's right. It's a, a, a you know a cycle of money. And so the more that we can keep that money in the cycle, the more that it multiplies and generates uh, additional wealth and well-being inside the company. So for every dollar that we keep inside of our economy, it generates two additional dollars. And it's different for every industry, but in agriculture, it works out to be about $2. So if we can keep a dollar of value in a rural community or introduce another dollar of value into that community, you're going to get two extra dollars of economic benefit or activity just because, you know, hey, they're going to pay a wage to the person who runs the machine that crushes the the beans. And then that person's going to go and spend some of that money at their coffee shop or buy a car. And then that profit's going to be turned over and over and over again. So you end up with uh, really a, a net benefit to that community where the assets are generated. Uh, and then that reverberates out, right? So it could be an even better thing for some of these rural areas where, you know, until 2019, 2020, there was a lot of pain felt in a lot of rural areas people were exiting after the pandemic there's been a little bit of a pushback into some some rural communities uh but having additional you know sort of economic engines coming back in here in the form of crush facilities and plants that are uh gonna put that value back to work in the united states economy i mean it's just can't beat it can't beat it i was gonna say that it 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 sounds very optimistic right and 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 what you know, we're we're talking about the the possibility of you know increased soy production, increased corn production. Um, you know, that's not to say that people need to exit wheat, but kind of for the reason that we were just saying, because strengthening of those markets also strengthens the land that produces other goods, and so it's an overall kind of stabilization of agricultural markets that that we could be looking at if if there is increased production in biofuels. Yeah, that's right. It's a it it, it uh, there's a an optimization or an equalization that happens. Um, same thing when um, 
you know, demand for corn went up, so did soybean prices, so did wheat prices, right? So it wasn't just the commodity that got the attention du jour was the only beneficiary. No, no, it spread out some of those costs because now if you uh, needed some grain for wheat or, or for, for feed or something else, there's substitution that can happen in some of these different um, crop commodities. And all of a sudden the value prop changes on each of them. So uh, it's not to say a rising tide raises all ships, but it raises uh, most of them. Uh, so if you get one demand driver into some of these uh, major crop producing commodities, they tend to all kind of move with it. So when you think about that situation, you know, from from the end point, you know, we're talking engines and mouths, right? When you think about it from the end point, could something like that drive an inflationary environment? Well, you know, we saw a little bit of food price inflation in 2005 and 2008. The RFS mandates came out. We saw some of that uh, uh, supply, you know, of corn start to get short prices got high, but then what did we do? We made more of it. Right. So I think the American farmer is probably one of the best supply demand managers, uh, of any system anywhere. I'll, I'll challenge any, you know, economic rational being against a farmer, right. When they respond to supply demand incentives and if prices go up, we will make more of it. And I think you'd see more land converted into grain producing and start to equalize some of those, uh, supply and demand across food and fuel. Uh, so the other <clears throat> X factor there is going to be technology. So can we see yields continue their run? Do you see better uh, field technology, better you know equipment that's going to help boost yields? Do we uh, can we do more with less in terms of inputs? So I think there's just a lot of ingenuity that will happen to sort of offset that immediate supply demand disruption from a new demand source. I was going to say there's a lot of advancements in things like, you know, the no-till technologies and stuff like that, where I mean, I call them technologies, but it's really going back to, to, the, to the roots of the, of the issue that, you know, that whole process decreases the cost of input and, and you know, could increase efficiency along the way. Um, I want to sort of, you know, because I want to, again, budget for time and respect your time and everything. I, I want to kind of drive, we were talking 2024 and, and our outlook and we're talking a plateau. Uh the drivers of that, of course, that we've seen so far are interest rates. Um, what do we anticipate in 2024? And again, this is like trying to predict the weather, right? But uh, what have we heard so far? And, and what does it look like as far as interest rates? Well, it, uh, hopefully we're a little better than the weather, right? But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you put the weather person against an economist. I think it's probably a little bit of hedging from from both parties. We're the, we're the greatest at giving you a non-answer, uh, the weather person and the economist. Um, right now, so the Fed, uh, the Fed speak, right? So Chair Powell gets in front of, uh, just on 60 minutes, uh, speaks every time there's an FOMC meeting, um, kind of signaling, hey, look, we're open for rate cuts, but we want to make sure that the economy's on stable footing and that we're not going to see a resurgence of inflation. So their two mandates are we need to have everybody employed and we need to have stable prices. Right now, everybody's employed. We got great employment numbers. The January report was a blockbuster. Uh, prices look stable, but they just want to check it out, make sure. So I think the door is cracked for rate cuts. When I look at the level of inflation, this is what I tell everybody, right? Like, look at the level of inflation. The, the Fed really wants to maintain a rate policy that's inflation plus half to a point to two points, right? So if inflation is 3%, I say to myself, well, the Fed probably is going to target that 4% level for their um, policy rate. Right now, the, the depending on which metric you use, inflation is between 3 and 3.5%. 3 
So, you know, we're still not down to the two that they're targeting. We're between three and three and a half. Uh, so that tells me that the Fed's probably, when they feel like prices are stable and the markets can handle it and not freak out and immediately start spending money, they're going to try to target that four to four and a half range in the short term, right? So they don't want to be too high. The, the problem with being too high is you cool the economy too much and you attract a lot of capital. So all of a sudden the dollar skyrockets and that's bad for a lot of reasons. You don't want to mess with currencies too much. Uh, so they want it to be too far out of whack, but they can't cut so quickly that you risk, you know, the economy overheating. So to me, I'm looking at three and a half as your inflation for the year. I think we're going to be you know, right at three to three and a half. So that tells me the Fed will try to get to four and a half by the end of the year, which is about what the market's predicting today is about four quarter point cuts between now and the end of the year. That's solid insight. As I'm listening to you, it's like, yes, that, yes. Uh, so last question I want to hit you with is, because I know that you all pay attention to this on a pretty regular basis, and it's been an ongoing thing for uh, a long time now, is Farm Bill is no. still not moved. The can keeps perpetually getting kicked down the road on it. Uh, any news feedback uh, inside on that? And I know a lot of people are in the dark, but I just wanted to see if you know what what sort of uh, information or or what sort of outlook you have on that. Well, I think it's um, when you get close to a major national election, you got a big piece of legislation hanging out. What we've seen in the past is they tend to uh, try to push that until the election, right? So I think that's. The most likely scenario here is to see the farm bill get continued. It's already been continued for uh, this fiscal year, so 24 fiscal year, uh, and for that to potentially get continued again into 25, and then you've either got a new, um, could be a new everything, White House, Senate, House, right, all, all could flip, uh, or you could have everything be the same, right? And then they're just like, okay, well, at least the people have spoken, and now we're going to negotiate a farm bill. I'll say everybody's working really hard on it. You know, the, what I hear, um, there's no amount of, you know, slacking that's happening. People really want to get good support, especially if you see the 24 projections. Hey, you know, the farm profits are much lower, right, than they were in 22. So let's find a way to keep the support mechanisms there for farmers, ranchers, rural Americans. Uh, but it just tends to be when there's a major piece of legislation and a major election that they're going to want to wait. The incentive is to wait until after the election. So that's my take uh, and, and maybe prediction on when you might see the 24 slash 25 farm bill could be uh, after November when we've got sort of that national election decided. But hey, uh, stranger things have happened. And, um, you know, everybody could get together tomorrow and say, you know, what, we kind of like this thing. Let's let's sign it into law to that. Stranger things have happened. It's going to be an interesting thing, especially, I mean, because there's, and I, I could see it definitely getting kicked down the road because they, they put like 1031 exchanges on on the farm bill and that really affects markets. If you make a call like that, you don't want to be going into an election, <laughs> but I, I it would be hard to imagine them doing that. But still, it, if, if you do something that nobody likes, you don't want it to decide your election, right? So, which again, thank you for holding us all hostage with your politics, but you know, as we all sit by and wait and, and see how that moves. No, I appreciate your insight there. Um, so I budgeted you for an hour, man. And uh, thank you again for for jumping on here with me. We've been doing this quarterly. It's become a tradition. I really, really enjoy it. Um, I know everybody really, really appreciates your insight. And uh, yeah, thank you very, very much. 
Well, it, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I look forward to the next one. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank you. This concludes episode number 81 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing land values for 2024 with former Mac Chief Economist Jackson Takish. You can learn more about the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. <laughs>